And now for the scripture reading. It's going to be Acts 16, 22 to 34. So it says, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in their stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your households. Then they spoke the, Lord, the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. All right. Everybody good? Every time I read that passage, or she reads it out loud, uh, I see something new. And so I'm like, oh, I could add that in, but it's a little late for that, because here we are. Um, Good to see you all. Glad you're here. And um, just so you know, in the coming months, uh, we've been having some planning about how sort of how the year's going to go. It's looking like, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it probably like summertime, we might be mostly back to normal. I, I hope. We'll see. That really depends on what's going on out there. Um, but we are going to have some like membership classes and stuff, and we'll be announcing some of that stuff. Um, I think we only had one membership class over the last year because COVID and we weren't meeting, and so we're like, let's just try one online. And a bunch of people showed up that I had never met that had never been to our church, and then they joined a church that they've never been to in real life. And I think that's blowing, that whole thing is blowing my mind. And every week I meet new people that are like, yeah, I've been coming for like a year. I'm like, really? I'm like, this is my first time being in the building. All of that is crazy to me. But I'm glad it's all happening. Um, So I look forward to meeting all the new people that are in the church that I'm the pastor of. Um, Okay, so uh, this is our passage today, and this is going to wrap up. So we've been doing we've been doing Acts 16 sort of out of order, Um, and. We're going to end sort of Acts 16 this week. We started off at the very bottom of the text, and we went to the top, and then here we're here. Um, so there's some interesting stuff going on here today that I'm going to talk about, so let's pray, and then let's jump right into this. We're going to, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff today. It's kind of going to be, we're going to be everywhere. Um, so let's prepare our, our brains for it, and me and myself. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that you would be uh, with me as I'm teaching this morning. I pray that you would uh, speak through me, allow me to remember clearly the things that, uh, that I've studied, that we've talked about, and... Um, I pray that, that uh, whatever words you give us today would be um, exactly what we need in this moment. I lift up all those who are going through difficulties and pain and struggle and uh, loneliness, and, and I, I lift them all up to you. You are the one who, uh, who grants us life and, and community and healing, and I pray that you would use our church uh, to be that for them. Um, I lift up every one of my brothers and sisters who are, who are out there watching um, be with them. Let them know right now that uh, 
we love them and we miss them and we will be together again, uh, I don't think too far away. And so thank you for guiding us through this whole thing, um, for fashioning us more and more in your image through everything that we endure and go through. I pray that this morning we would learn a little bit more about what it means to be Christ-like, about forming our life um, to look more like the life of, of Jesus so that when the world looks at us, they, uh, they know what you look like. They know what God is like. And so I pray that you would do that for us. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, so Paul and Silas are arrested. They've been falsely accused. They freed a, a slave girl from this uh, apparent demonic possession kind of situation. And she is basically being trafficked and used by her slave masters. Um, and they have freed her. She can no longer like do what she was doing. And so the economic system is sort of collapsing, and they're mad. They're mad at these outsiders, these Jewish people. So there's a tinge of like economic vengeance. There's a tinge of, of racial anger towards these outsiders. Um, and so they are arrested, lied about, tried unjustly, thrown in prison. Um, we, read that, we, ugh, we read about that right here in verse 22 through 24. The crowd joined in, an attack, uh, in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in the socks. So several things are happening here. Paul and Silas are stripped naked. Um, that's an act of stripping somebody of their honor and their dignity in the ancient world. Um, it's the same thing they did to Jesus. And so when you read, again, when you read the book of Acts, it's sort of part two of like, it's, it's the same author, Luke and Acts. And if you sort of put these books together, they are like a mirror image of each other. Everything that Jesus went through, the disciples go through. Um, and everything that Jesus does, the disciples do. Um, because they are supposed to be like Christ. They are supposed to be the representatives of Christ in this world. That's what the church is supposed to be. And so they are stripped naked and they are flogged. Um, I like to like look up exactly like what's going on with these passages. Apparently when these people are flogged, there was, um, in the ancient world, all these magistrates that you read about in passages like this had these sort of guys that were following around um, with them and they would carry these, this is an ancient Roman coin that's apparently much more pixeled now than it was when I put it on there. Um, but they're carrying these, this is Brutus, one of the emperors, and then you have them carrying these giant poles around him. Um, these men are called lictors, um, and they are carrying these giant things called fasces, um, and they're sort of rods, birch rods that have been sort of all strung, like bound together. Sometimes they would have an axe head on them to show like, to symbolize something, but they were very, very long. Um, and one of the ways that they would show power over outsiders is that they would regularly take outsiders and accuse them of doing wrong, or maybe they actually did something wrong, and they would tie them up, and the, the, the electors would take their rods, their bundle of rods, and would just beat them um, in front of everybody, strip them naked and beat them as a way of humiliating them, as a way of making them sort of like, Rome owns you, Rome is over you, and you will never be free of us. It's sort of like this big statement that they're making. Uh, to the world. This is what Paul and Silas are going through, and it hurts incredibly bad, and they are suffering under this whole thing. Um, hold on just a second here. Uh, okay, so um, in other words, like, what they're going through is incredibly painful. It, a little later, you read that, like, it left these wounds that needed to be cleaned, and the jailer will clean these wounds eventually here. Um, but under no circumstances 
do they, while they are enduring this kind of abuse, while their legs are being locked up in the stocks, under no circumstances do they ever stand up and claim, by the way, we're citizens of Rome. And Paul was a citizen of Rome. It was against Roman law for a citizen of Rome to be treated this way. This is how you treat outsiders. This is not how you treat the Roman people, the Roman populace, the citizens of, of, of the mightiest kingdom in all the world. You do not treat them like this. Um, but Paul never says anything about that. Paul never claims this whole time. We don't even know how long he was locked up. The whole thing could have stopped if Paul had just stood up and said, uh, I'm a Roman citizen. You have no right to do any of this, and I demand a fair trial. I demand you take me to Rome. Eventually, he would do this, but not yet. Right now, he is just enduring it, and it's a really interesting thing to think about. And when you actually look at what Paul was doing, why didn't he stop the pain from happening by claiming he was a Roman citizen? And the interesting thing that you see is that um, Paul understands that if he had claimed his Roman citizenship, he really would have been rejecting his Jewishness. And if you reject your Jewishness in favor of, like this is, this is the reason it was so offensive for people like Zacchaeus to be a tax collector. This is why it was so offensive for Matthew to be a tax collector. Because if you are a Jewish person in the first century or any time before that, that was your citizenship. That's who you were. You were Jewish. You were not Roman. They, they would never hold dual citizenship, these, these, these Jewish men and women. They considered themselves a nation. They were God's people. They were a nation in the world all by themselves. And they would never say, well, I'm a Jewish Roman. You were one or you were the other. And so when Matthew is found, the, the, the author of like the, the gospel of Matthew, when you find him, one of, the, one of Jesus' disciples gathering tax for Rome, he's basically squaring off his Jewish heritage and becoming a part of a whole other people. And Paul is planting churches um, that are supposed to be sort of a symbol of Israel, but expanded to include Jews. So they are a new people, expanded to include Gentiles, Romans. And so they're a whole new people. And under no circumstances would the early church consider themselves Roman. They were Christian. This is what they were. They never identified with the nations in which they were living until Constantine 325-ish and after that. That's when Christians started identifying with the countries in which they were living. And so you can see in a little bit here um, in, in verse 38, it says the officers reported um, this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They were terrified when they actually found out that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens because now they had broken the law. And so what you see when you look at Paul is there's times, there's times when Paul claims his Roman citizenship, but it is never to escape um, the identity of Jewishness. Paul expects that as one of God's people, he will be thrown in prison and he will be beaten and he will, be, he will suffer for it because the people of Israel always have. But there's basically some of the things I wanted to write down that you could see about how Paul uses his national citizenship is Paul ignores his citizenship in order to remain holy and separate in the world. They were a separate people. Let the world be the world. Let God's people be God's people. We have our own way of doing things and that's okay. That is how it, has always, it was always supposed to be. So Paul ignored his citizenship um, so that he could be one of the Jewish people. Imagine if he had said, no, 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 I'm, I'm Jewish. He's teaching the church that he's planting that they can identify with Rome. And, and under no circumstances would he do this. But the second thing you see is that Paul wielded his Roman citizenship to expose evil and bring down powerful men acting unjustly. Whenever Paul sees powerful people acting unjustly, he pulls their own laws out against them and says, I'm pulling 
my Roman card here. And I'm going to use it to stop your unjust actions towards the people around you and towards outsiders. But he doesn't do it to protect himself. And the last thing you see is Paul never uses it for his own benefit or his own gain. The early church has no desire to get into power and to sit on the throne and to rule over the world. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is on the throne and Jesus is already ruling over them and they are God's people and God will expand his kingdom in the manner in which God sees fit. Um, Oftentimes, though, we want so badly for our king, for Jesus, to to be seen as sitting on the throne of, of the nation in which we are in, but this is not how the early church ever would have imagined that we should dwell in this world. We are a separate people. As one of my favorite Anabaptist writers, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, says, let, let the world be the world so the church can be the church. We are a people. Um, and I, I, get, I get emails and comments sometimes that, that ask, like, Tommy, why do you talk so much these days about Christian, the, the Christian and their relationship to the states, to the nation, to the empire? Because I see that as the greatest threat to the church right now. I think in our generation, we are grappling with generations upon generations of people merging their Christianity with their nations in which they were born and into and live in. And whatever is the greatest threat to the church is also, I would argue, the greatest threat to the world because the church is supposed to be the hope of the world. Yet somehow we end up playing the same games that they are. We are a separate people who should be in the way when there is injustice and who should be paving the way when there is goodness happening. Um, I don't think that can happen necessarily from the top and neither did Paul. Jesus is in charge of the whole thing and we follow Jesus in this way. So let's go back to our passage. We have, we have them worshiping in prison. It says in Acts 16, 25, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Um, what's going on here? Why are these men singing hymns? First off at midnight, that's annoying. Um, other prisoners probably tired, long day of brutality that they've endured and they probably want some sleep. But Paul and Silas are singing songs in the middle of the night and everyone else is listening to them. Why are they doing this? Well, this is what God's people have always done. At midnight, whenever they find themselves in bondage, their rule is at midnight, we rise up and we sing the songs of God. Um, they get this from passages like um, uh, Psalm 119. It says, in the night, Lord, I remember your name, that I may keep your law. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. And at midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. And so this is what the people of God have always done. They always saw bondage and enslavement um, and oppression whenever they were were bound up and, and subdued in some way. In their mind, they always had a captive audience. Well, these people have to listen to us now. They have chosen to lock us up in their midst. We're going to sing some songs, and they're going to know who our God is as we sing these songs. And so that's what they begin to do. They begin to sing the songs. And I'm sure we could, we could probably decipher, if we, if we read some ancient texts, we could probably figure out exactly what they were singing about and what songs they were singing. But it didn't really matter. They looked around, and they saw a captive audience, all these people locked up in this prison. We have the, the, the guard here, the jailer. We don't even know how long they were in prison. It doesn't tell us. They literally could have been in prison for days, weeks, months. We don't know how long they were there. But apparently, it was long enough to where all the people in the prison and the jailer had built a bit of a relationship with them and had come to learn their theology, their ideas about God, um, 
had come to look up to them. I imagine during the day, as Paul did, Paul's a teacher at heart. This is what Paul does. And so Paul, again, he's tied to the wall. And so Paul is just going to start teaching the people who can, who can hear him about Jesus and about this whole new way, this whole new way of existing in the world, a whole new kingdom that God is planting that will grow and overtake and swallow up these, these other pagan kingdoms that he, I'm sure he tells them about the great day of the Lord, which is not something to be terrified of. It's the great hope of all mankind that it's the day when the world would finally see that Jesus was right, that there is a better way to live and that God looks like Jesus. And we haven't always known this, but now we do. And all these captive audience people are there and they're listening to Paul as as he teaches and as they sing, and they begin to apparently build a bit of a relationship with them. Um, and they're hearing how, how, how their God sets the captives free, how, and it catches the ears of the other prisoners, and it draws them in, and it catches the ears of the jailer, and it brings conviction uh, and feelings of regret and remorse and maybe even fear that he is taking part in something that is evil and wrong and should not be done. And, and he's humanizing themselves as prisoners and these other prisoners to the jailer. And something begins to happen. And it's, I, I kind of, I like, I pictured in my mind, I wish I could be there and see what the camaraderie like that was kind of building. Because something really interesting happens here in the next passage. It says, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken and all at once, all the prison doors flew open, everyone's chains came loose and the jailer woke up and when he had saw that the prison doors were open, he, threw his, uh, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. So earthquakes are very common in this time, in this place. Very common. And apparently this was a big one because it crumbled some of the doors and the chains. It shook them loose from the walls, and the, the prisoners found themselves with an opportunity to be free. But apparently, it appears that they had built up a rapport with Paul and Silas and the jailer. And they know that if they escape, the jailer is going to die. And they care now, for some reason, about this man who has been oppressing them. And so they all choose to stay. They follow Paul's lead. And Paul says, if we leave, he dies. And so I would rather suffer myself to protect his life, as Christians should do. And we're going to stay where we are and suffer this inconvenience so that this person can live. And what that does is it breaks down the walls of the jailer in his mind and opens up his heart towards them. And he comes rushing in. And it says this, it says, the jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Uh, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So Paul begins to, apparently this jailer takes them to his house, which is incredibly illegal. (laughs) And he does this anyway. He doesn't seem to care. And he takes them to his house And they begin to teach him about the ways of Jesus and salvation, proclaim the gospel to him, um, probably in as many ways as they can, helping him to understand what exactly it means that Jesus entered into the world and was killed by the Roman Empire. It says, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And so upon seeing them, he asks, what, what must I do to be saved? And I think that's a fascinating question. 
because he sees in them something that he desires. They seem to be free of something that he is not free of. Um, and the answer comes, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Um, and it doesn't just end there. It says you and your household. And I don't have time to open all that up today, what this means. Um, I'd like to at some point. Um, but he asked, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him, and oftentimes people have a question, okay, so what does it look like, though, to, to get saved, as we tend to call it, like it's something that we can get and possess? Um, what does it mean to get saved? This is what it looks like when someone actually, quote-unquote, gets saved, when they receive salvation. This is what it looks like. Look at what he's doing. This man brings these prisoners to his house. He was about to kill himself to defend his honor as a Roman jailer after these people have all escaped, he finds out they haven't. They remain in captivity for his life. And so he trades his death as a Roman citizen and he risks being executed as a Christian. He brings them all to his house. This is highly illegal. And what does he do? He was willing to die to preserve his honor and now he's willing to die so that he can share a meal with these prisoners, these apostles and these Christians these people that he, his whole life, has probably been locking up and beating and oppressing, and suddenly he finds himself with this deep adoration for them. And it says he and his entire household believed and were baptized. This is a big deal in the ancient world, to be baptized, especially, it had, it had some meaning for the Jewish people that was not necessarily the same meaning that it had for the Gentiles. The Gentiles used baptism in a way that brought somebody, like, a, like, like if, if you were a household, the only way I can speak about this is like in slave language of the first century. If you were in a household, and let's say you, you decided to buy a slave off of another household, when that slave came into your household, um, they would basically strip naked and they would baptize them and you would give them new clothes and a new name and put new jewelry on them and welcome them in to your house. It was a way of saying like, you are now one of us in our household. And as we all work collectively for the glory of our Lord, the paterfamilia of the family, the, the, the man of the house, if you will. Um, as we work for the glory of our Lord, your status will rise in society too. Uh, and so for them, baptism was a very like, interesting thing. So when, when this man, this jailer, and his household are all baptized, what they're basically saying is we have a new Lord. We're a part of a new people, a new kingdom, a new nation. We have new brothers and sisters it is going all in with your identity, all right? It's like, when, it's like when your kid, I can only compare this with the 90s, you would know these kids and then sometimes one kid would meet goth kids and they would be like, oh, I want to be a goth kid. And they just, they come back the next day and they're wearing guy liner and their hair, hair's black and like maybe pulled over and black jinkos, big ones and chains and stuff. And you're like, oh, you're, you have a new people. <laughs> Excited for you. And... Um, let me take some pictures and I'll show them to you in 15 years. It'll be fun. Um, and like, this is what it means. Like suddenly they, this jailer and his household have a new people that the day before were prisoners. That he was beating and locking up. And now he looks at them as his brothers. This is what it looks like to get saved. I hope you're grasping like the weight of everything that we are seeing here in this passage. He's washing their wounds. He's bringing them healing. He takes them in. He literally sets, he does a Christian church ceremony. He sets a table 
cooks them a meal, and they all share a meal together at the table. You did not share meals in the first century with people who you did not view as being at the same honor and status as you. It's not something you did. This is why the agape feasts of the early church were so shocking to the world. Men, women, slave, free, eunuchs and Jews all sitting together talking about their Lord Jesus. What is this? Everyone belongs somehow. How do you buy in? What do you have to do? What do you have to give of yourself? How do you earn this status? And they say, forsake your kings and welcome into our nation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith, your pistis is the Greek word. It means allegiance. Put your allegiance in Jesus and nobody else. And how do you know that somebody's really made this decision? How do you know that their life is really aligned with Christ? Look at the jailer. Look at the shocking change in his life. Look at these people in the New Testament, what happens to them when they make this step. It's always surprising how far these people will go when they realize just what Jesus was doing, just what he's offering them. And this is the difference between how we deal with our enemies as well. Once somebody becomes a follower of Jesus, they begin to look at their enemies no longer as someone to be killed, but as someone to be brought in and loved and poured out for. You see, the world gets rid of their enemies with their weapons and their military. They kill their enemies. Christians get rid of their enemies by making them their brothers and sisters. There's two ways to get rid of your enemies. There's the way of the world and there's the way of Christ. This is one of the reasons the way of Christ is so shocking. That it can make brothers of a a slave master and a slave. It can make brothers of, of enemies at war. This is what Jesus has always done. Even the moment when Jesus was dying, you have, this, you have this Roman soldier who just took part in his death. And at the end of the story, the veil is rent, and he looks up and he says, I think, I think this guy really was the son of God, which is a Gentile way of saying king. I think he is the true king. Um, and so this begs the question, what is salvation then? What is, what is salvation? Because I was raised being taught like salvation is something that you sort of buy now when you redeem later when you're dead. And then you go to the place in the sky with the gold streets and the pearly gates. It's somewhere else while God sort of nukes the planet here and it's all gone because these are all the bad people. And so we have this very Gnostic, Plato-esque, like earthly empire, militaristic sort of ending in mind oftentimes. But that is not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about salvation. Sure, there is some of this like the toppling of earthly empires and all that stuff, but What about salvation as we talk about it now? What does it mean for this jailer to receive salvation? So let's talk about that. What is salvation? So the word that we translate as salvation in the New Testament um, is this word soteria. That's the word in the Greek. Uh, In the Hebrew, it's this word yesa. I'm not not a Hebrew guy. I'm not good at it. So if I'm saying it wrong, let me know afterwards. Um, So soteria, yesa, and this is sort of, These two words we oftentimes translate as salvation, but not always. I will talk a little bit more about what this means. But oftentimes, if you want to know what a passage means, if you want to know what a word means and how it's used, you have to look at how it was used in the first century. And this is what a lot of biblical scholars spend their time doing, going through ancient manuscripts and papyrus that they dig up in the middle of the sandy desert. And they look at it and they see words used. They're like, oh, this word's in the Bible. Let's see how they're using it. And you let sort of the ancient culture of the day sort of dictate to you how words were used. I can use a word like, very cool. And I'm not talking about the temperature. Like, 
And so generations and thousands of years from now, they might hear me say something like, it's ve- that's very cool. And they might think I'm talking about temperature. And then if, if they dig up the papyri of like, I don't know what that would be, like Facebook posts of the 21st century. And they look at it like, oh, they're apparently not talking about the temperature. They're using it in another way. So um, biblical scholars are doing this as well. So if you look at this word and how it was used in the ancient world, here's the literal translation. It literally means, oh, I hit the button. Let me hit the button again. Okay. It literally means to bring into a spacious environment. Not real helpful. Unless you think about it like the usage of somebody, somebody who's using it who, who felt like they were bound up and trapped. I can't breathe. I feel like I can't, I can't um, be myself. I feel like there's all these different ways that I, can't, uh, that, that I can't be natural. There's all these things that, that I just can't do. Um, there's all these ways that I'm held back. There's all these things that are like I feel bound up. And salvation is all those cords being cut and suddenly I'm free. And it's, it's like uh, suddenly I can move and I can breathe and I can, um, I can be the person I was created to be, okay? Like that is the literal meaning of salvation. And then there's like these cultural usages of it. Let's look at those two. Uh, here's uh, the main one. I'm just gonna give, really give you just the main one here. Um, casual usage was uh, oftentimes recovering something that was lost or in the wrong hands being found. And so if you, if you think about that in this way, sort of I lost something and it's, all of my thoughts are wrapped up in reattaining this thing that I had that I lost. And I cannot be free and I cannot relax until I get this thing back. And I will do everything I can to get this thing back. And when you receive it, they call that soteria. You can rest again. You can breathe again. The lost thing has been found. It has been brought back in. And this is what salvation means. And so let's ponder uh, salvation in light of this jailer. Someone who is saved and who is now made whole and healed and set free. What are the ways that this jailer was in bondage? Oftentimes we don't think about the fact that our oppressors are also themselves um, being oppressed, that they themselves are not free, that they are part of an ideology or a system that keeps them where they are. This man was not free to look at these prisoners as his brothers. This man was not free Um, like the second they got away, he literally pulled out his sword to kill himself. These are not the actions of a man who is free. These are not the actions of of a man who who is joyous, who has received the gift of life and appreciates it, who has an understanding of God and what God is doing in the world and their role in the world. This is just a man who is terrified in the very existence that that he's living out right now. He is not free. And the fact that he has to keep abusing these prisoners in this way, like cognitive dissonance, you, you look at something and you're like, I, they're good, yet I am the one locking them up and torturing them. And I no longer want to do this, but I have to do this. That stuff will eat you alive inside. Wanting to do something and not being able to. That is a recipe for a disaster mentally. And so he is not free. And so suddenly what you see is he's setting the table for all of these people who he was never allowed to eat with, people he was never allowed to love, to look at as equals, to offer himself to, and to receive their love as well. 
He became an entirely different person in the span of a few verses. I don't know how long the process was. Maybe it was a few days. Maybe it was a few weeks. We don't really know. But suddenly, the person that he knew inside that he should be, he was allowed to be. The one that could share a glass of wine and a meal with those he was culturally forbidden to embrace. And suddenly he could embrace them. This is salvation. Like, this is goodness. There are so many ways in which we are forbidden from being the people God has called us to be in this world because of affiliations, because of fear, because of fear of what we're going to lose financially, economically, our status, our jobs, our money, our income. This is what freedom looks like. Doing the right thing no matter what. Telling the truth no matter what. When you look at how the word is used in the New Testament, Jesus only uses the word once, the, salvation, the word salvation one time. He's talking to a man named Zacchaeus. Is this the right passage? Uh, yes, Luke 19. Um, and so Zacchaeus was hated because Zacchaeus had joined with the empire and was collecting taxes. And these tax collectors, the reason they were so hated was not just because they had forsaken their people and had joined with the empire to oppress their own people. No, they were also hated because they would regularly charge exorbitant taxes over and above what they were supposed to and pocket the rest. And the Romans let them do this. It was their way of sort of saying, thank you. I know it's difficult to betray your own people. Here's some money to cover the pain. Um, And this is what Zacchaeus was doing. And there comes this moment where Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was a man of low status and low honor amongst the Jewish people. But when Jesus steps into his house, suddenly that honor is raised. And suddenly this man realizes, I I have a a shot at redemption with my life. And Zacchaeus, in that moment, pledges reparations. He says, every wrong that I have done, I'm going to make it right again. And then Jesus, after he says this, Jesus turns and looks at him and says, uh, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is the only time Jesus uses salvation and he uses it for the restoration of this man who had been separated from his people, who had betrayed his own people. But the word is used a lot. Even though it's only used once by Jesus, he's used a lot by his apostles um, all through the New Testament. Um, here's a few other instances of that. I put three up here. There's, there's how, many, how many did I collect? I, I found uh, 45 different references, for starters, for this word soteria being used in the New Testament. And it's not always translated as salvation. Um, you can see it has a wide range of usage um, because God cares about our holistic self, every part of your life. God is not just concerned with what happens to you after you die. It's that and many, many other things. Um, There is a gospel for people who aren't about to die tonight. Like it matters. Like the the question I was always taught to ask when I was a kid was, uh, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd go? And then I would tell them about the gospel. But how about if I say like, if you knew you weren't going to die for 100 years, tell me the use of the gospel right now. And a lot of Christians have a hard time pondering that because they've wrapped it so much into this one particular thing that has to do with later. But look at all the ways the word is used. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. So the word soteria literally can mean to survive, to save someone's life. Um, Acts 7.25, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue soteria, them. 
but they did not. So that word here is used for rescue. When people need to be rescued, that is a form of salvation, of soteria. Acts 7.34, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. I have come down to set them free. Soteria, that setting someone free is a form of salvation. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. So that's not a very uplifting way to end things. But um, the way that this word is used is not always just this afterlife thing. It is setting the world to rights again. That is the general idea of the word. So the very idea of salvation as being something simply reserved for your soul while ignoring the many ways in which we need to be made whole is not a salvation that the authors of scripture would ever recognize. For the early Christians, God's plan was the restoration of all things here. Not to blow it all up and bomb it and fly it somewhere else. That's how Americans settle things. God is not planning on doing that. God wants to make the world whole again. For them, not a prisoner would be left to rot behind bars. Not a single lonely person would be left alone. Not a single hungry person would go unfed. Not a single soul would, be, would escape the love of God. Whether they, whether they accepted or, or, or rejected that love, God would pursue them. This is how they viewed the world, that God was after human beings to save them and rescue them and draw them in no matter what it took. Because we, we are, all are suffering the consequences of, of, of having the wrong kings, of, of following our idolatrous leaders into the ways that they're calling us to live in this world. Let them be the world. Again, we should be the church. We are separate. I remember growing up, I would always see these things called altar calls. You ever see those? Um, maybe you came from a church that does altar calls regularly. Do you know where that started? Like I, I have people regularly come up like, why don't you do an altar call? I like, I mean, we sort of do. Do you know where the altar call came from? The altar call was invented um, during the abolition movement. It was, it was invented by a man named Charles Grandison Finney. Charles Finney. He's a preacher, and he would preach the gospel, and people would believe in the name of Jesus, and he would say, if you believe in the name of Jesus, I want you to come forward and sign your name on this sheet to join the abolitionist movement to free the slaves. That's where the altar call came from. And the reason he called it an altar call is because he's calling you to come up and lay on the altar to offer your body as a living sacrifice using Paul's own words to free all those who need it, to bring salvation to all those who are bound up and in desperate need of God's free spaces, right? Like the way that they spoke about salvation in the ancient world was beautiful. It was huge, and a lot of Christians throughout history have understood this. And so Charles Finney invents this altar call and he calls people to come forward, come down the aisle, come on up, sign your name right here and you're gonna join us next week as we work for the abolition of our brothers and sisters. This is how it started because this is what salvation looks like. Ordering your life around the things that God is doing. Becoming a part of them. Joining in. Um, in fact, I, so I had, a, I had a professor, he, one of the most profound things I ever heard him say, he said, he said, you know what the New Testament is? He said, it's, um, it's bringing together 12 authors to a table, right? All from sort of different contexts and going through different things. And it's asking each one of them, what does salvation look like? And each one of them speaking from their own context, what the gospel does in their neighborhood, in their community, in their part of the ancient world, in their people, what does it mean for the Jewish people? What does it mean for the Gentiles? What does it mean for the Samaritans? You would ask John about that. John was the pastor of the 
Johannian church who was heavily made up of Sumerians. He would go out and catch the lost Sumerians. He would teach them about Jesus and they would come in and the Jewish people eventually kicked them out of the synagogue for bringing Samaritans in, for trying to reconcile them with their sort of religious cousins, if you will. That's why John tells so many stories about Samaritans because he knows he has a Jewish audience that's gonna read it and be like, why? Why was Jesus so lovey-dovey on the Samaritans? And John forces the Jewish people in his own church to confront their own xenophobia and racism of their religious cousins and to bring them into the church again. And so the New Testament is gathering 12 authors together over the span of like 80 years and asking them, what is salvation? Tell us about it. What is salvation? Tell us about it. And each one of them talking about their space and their time and their experiences and seeing what happens when, a gospel, when the gospel enters into your neighborhood. Here's all the things that begin to happen. Here's how things begin to mend and be made right again. When we forsake our earthly kings and we embrace Jesus as our king, when we actually put Jesus, we try, when we stop trying to put him on the throne of earthly kingdoms and we start putting him on the throne of the church, what happens? What does it look like? And that's where we get the New Testament. This is, what it, this is the entire revelation that we have. But guys, you don't, you don't get saved. It's not something that you possess Salvation and healing and wholeness are the natural outcomes of having the right king, of having allegiance in the right, in the right leader, and it's Jesus. And salvation is for the whole world now. That is why we must always proclaim we have no king but Jesus, and we have no kingdom but the kingdom of heaven. And so with that, I'm gonna close in prayer, and then I would like us to... Uh, today do the, uh, the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that you would guide us into um, a life that is exercising our salvation. You have clearly told us that they will know us by our fruit. So I pray that we would bear some fruit. I pray that nobody would have to guess who our king is. I pray that nobody would have to guess who we're following. I pray that when they look at us, they would know, they would begin to easily see what you are like, God, because we are organizing our life around the life and the teachings of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. I pray that you would be present in all of that. Guide us into that. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Will you guys stand with me? We'll do the Lord's Prayer. Let's do it nice and loud together, shall we? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all. Love you all. Everybody out there, I miss you. Uh, grace and peace, have the greatest week of your life.